can't believe it. Stupid fucking pricks. They're gonna, they're gonna do it. I, I knew they'd do it. Just because I knew how stupid they were. I, I, in my head, I was thinking, nah, nah, they won't do it. They won't sack Maguire. But sure enough, news is out there. West Tigers look like they're going to sack Maguire at the end of the week. I can't fucking believe it. He's the one hell. thing they need is a new coach. That'll fix everything. <sighs> fucking Potato and Chairman Lee. It's fucking wankers. I know, right? You know, if I was a West Tigers fan, I would email the club and tell them that they need to get rid of the CEO and the entire board. I can tell you right now, I posted some stuff on Twitter today. Yes. Um, some stats, actually. Some facts. Hard like, fucking facts. Can you run through them? Because I saw some of these facts. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So, Justin Pascoe. I don't know if many people know about his background. Um, but he, he was in marketing or some bullshit at Penrith for a while there. And then in August 2014, he became the head of rugby league at the Panthers. Now, I'm sure that you know that in 2014, Penrith finished what, third or fourth. We were terrible. 2014? We were terrible for 10 years. Yeah, Anything, no, but, I, I can't remember where we were in 2014. Pretty certain 2014, you, were, you finished fourth. Okay. And then the very next year, a whole year of Pasco. You were one win away from getting the wooden spoon. Oh, really? That's his precept. That's what he said. He, You finally got up to the top of the tree. You're going, right, we're back in the fucking finals. Let's go. And Pascoe goes, fuck yous. Down to the bottom of the ladder you go. And the Tigers saw that and went, let's fucking hire him. We like the way this guy operates. Let's get this guy running the whole shebang. Everything. Let's give him the fucking keys to everything. So from September 2015 till now, he's been at the club. <clears throat> the Tigers have won something like 54 or 56 of 140 games with him at the helm. Wow. They finished 9th, 14th, 9th, 9th, 11th, 13th. Far he out. Has not yet seen one full season of getting a team that he's in control of into the finals. Not once. Now, he to be jagged. He's even got close. He hasn't jagged. Those nights that the Tigers had... They were, they were distant nights. Yeah, they were coming home with a wet sail ninth. Yeah, and there was quite a bit of daylight between ninth and eighth there. Yeah, but to be fair, he is running a club that is in a salary cap controlled competition and that is one of the closest competitions in the world up until the last 18 months. And there is a lot of turnover of teams that make the finals. So, of course, the West Tigers are not going to be involved in any of that and any sort of shred of success. In, I mean, let's have, let's have a look at another fact then, shall we? In the last <laughs> decade, every single team has made the finals once, except for one team. Can I guess who it is? Have a guess. Is it the Western Suburbs Tigers? That's the one. How about that? Fuck me. And now they're going to get rid of him. And as I said in the last episode, I don't care if you want to get rid of Justin, uh, if you want to get rid of Michael Maguire. If the, if the club decides after it's done a proper review by competent humans, not a bunch of pot plants who think they know what they're doing, mm-hmm. then fine. But let a competent new board 
pick the new coach, not these fucking idiots who keeps hiring coaches that they end up sacking, which is just them admitting that they made the wrong decision. So why do we keep getting these people who admit that they keep making the wrong decision to keep making more wrong decisions? How is that building success? It's a very good question. I I would also say that the West Tigers are one of the few NRL clubs where members of the club can't actually vote on the board's makeup. Would that be correct? I believe that's the case, yes. Mm, I think that that's very telling. Yeah. How's this for you? The off-season last year, we're not even talking 12 months ago. Mm-hmm. It's about nine, maybe 10 months ago. Mm-hmm. This club, these people, Chairman Lee and the Spud, they gave Michael Maguire a two-year contract extension. And they said, the extension of Michael's contract affirms our faith in him as the coach that West Tigers needs to continue to move forward. So now they're admitting that they're liars or that they were wrong in both cases they're not competent to do this job. Yeah. Well, look, at some point, if you if you look through how much money they've had to just pay out coaches that they have hired and then fired and let go, and just look at the money that they've spent in paying those coaches out, yeah. that in itself alone is enough for dismissal, in my opinion. And if they um, hadn't actually given him a contract extension... He'd be off contract now, which means if they decide to go with another coach, it wouldn't cost them anything. Now they've got to pay out an extra two years' worth of contract. Fucking yeah. genius. Yeah. And look, like we've both said, neither of us believe that Mog- – we both think that Maguire should be there long term. He isn't the problem. Like, it, he is the last in the line of the problems at the West Tigers. And it's unfortunate that he has had to go through this entire mess – And I think if you look at that Tiger Town documentary, it really shows that this is a guy that is working his ass off to try and get this club going in the right direction. And he's surrounded by incompetent people. It's exactly right. Absolutely nailed it. If you create a culture that protects underperforming players and constantly throws coaches under the bus at the first opportunity, you will struggle to sign elite players, which is the case, and eventually, you will find it harder and harder to find a coach. And that's the point, the case here, because the Tigers are now looking to the UK for a coach. The only one in Australia they can get, well, is apparently that they're chasing, is Cameron Seraldo, who's a brilliant assistant coach over at Penrith. And I wouldn't be surprised if Seraldo looks at the Tigers and says, fuck that, not touching that. And so the other two coaches that they're looking at, are, you know, British coaches anyway, Steve McNamara, Oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> he's, the, he's the best of the two British options. Wow. The other one is Sean Wayne. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's a disaster. I haven't and heard so that. There's a fourth option. Yeah. And, and that's Christian Wolf. And Christian Wolf is a good coach, but he's not going to come over to the West Tigers. And there's a reason why any coach, even a half-decent one, will not come to the West Tigers, and that's because the West Tigers are coach killers. Wayne Pierce. Wayne Pierce never coached again after coaching in the NRL. He even coached success in Origin. Mm -hmm. Never again after being at West Tigers. Terry Lamb, never again. Tim Sheens had to leave the fucking country despite winning a few premierships. Had to leave the country after being at West Tigers to find his next coaching gig. Then you've got Mick Potter, 
become an assistant coach. Jason Taylor. Ivan Cleary was smart enough to leave before he got poisoned with that bullshit. And now we've got Michael Maguire. I mean, who's going to sign him now after what he's been through at the West Tigers? Yeah, it's going to be tough for him. You know what? His time at the West Tigers, I think he'll get another coaching hit, but the time at the West Tigers will be brushed aside. And I think that, you know, that's the only thing that's going to get him another job. Um, I can't believe that they would look at someone like McNamara, Sean Wayne, you know, there are certain clubs in England that you can go to and you can either find success or you can just be, St. Helens is a really good example. They've had a lot of coaches there that have won a lot of premierships over the last, say, 15 years. And none of them have been elite coaches, really. Uh, Maguire was very good at Wigan. Um, You look at Nathan Brown at Huddersfield, and they looked at him as a revolutionary coach in Super League. And in the NRL, he is far from that. If anything, he is one of the lower table coaches. So to look at McNamara... And Sean Wayne, I don't rate Sean Wayne at all. And McNamara, I I just can't believe anybody would look at his record, look at what he's done with the teams that he's been involved with, and even think of him as a coach. Like, I believe that the Catalan Dragons succeed in spite of him. He is a terrible coach. Yeah, he's, uh, his game plans are non-existent. Mm Mm-hmm. And most of the Catalan success is based on the fact that they've basically got the French national team running out there with a few handy English players and Australian players to to um, help steer them around, who know how to run, you know, some pretty standard attacking plays. Well, you look at if you just took the the better uh, French players that they get their hands on before other clubs get, and you add James Maloney to it and Sam Tompkins. I mean, just that alone is enough to be a very good Super League club. Yeah. You know, and and this is a club where, I mean, even Kevin Walters wasn't too bad when he went there, and there were question marks about him um, as a first-grade coach. Now, he's come to the NRL and done pretty well, but he has done a very long apprenticeship as well. Yeah, and he's walked into a very hard job too. He has, yeah. I, I think it's, I think what, Kevin Walters has done this season has been remarkable considering what he had to work with and what he had to fix. You know, the Broncos, I feel they're not a very good team, but they're at least going, they're back on track. They're not falling apart like they used to. Um, Steve McNamara's record, I think, speaks for itself. And Sean Wayne, I mean, he hasn't done anything outside of being the Wigan coach. And, you know, if you coach Wigan St. Helens or Leeds, you're going to win a title if you stay there long enough. It doesn't mean you're a good coach. You know, no. Brian uh, Brian McNamara, was it was that his name? Steve. No, no, no. Oh, Brian oh. McDermott, maybe? Brian McDermott. Brian, the coach? Yeah. I've had a few to drink, people. So <laughs> he's a terrible coach. He was at the London Broncos and drove them into the ground. He was one of the... Worst things that happened to the London Broncos outside of Tony Ray, who was killed the London Broncos a handful of times. Um, but he went to Leeds and he won titles and they thought he was a magnificent coach. 
And of course he leads, leaves leads and does nothing anywhere else. You know, there's, you can't go by super league records. You just can't. No, that's right. It's, as you said, you can walk into, you know, I could, I could probably put my six year old daughter in charge of Wigan and they'd win a title. Yeah. If she stays there long enough. Yeah. Yeah. Like remember Brian McLennan, that Kiwi bloke. Yeah. Terrible coach. They thought he was a genius over in Super League. It's it's pretty easy when you're coaching one of the top three teams over there. Really easy, because you're just outspending everyone else. Yeah. I can't believe that in the hotbed of rugby league in the entire planet, the West Tigers, based at Concord, they are thinking that the best place to find a coach is northern fucking England. Yep. Um, a bunch of dickheads summed up perfectly. I, I just keep, I keep going back to this, uh, this article about and the quotes in it from when Maguire was extended. Mm-hmm. He is completely aligned with our passion for the club and is absolutely committed to its long term and su- sustained success. Pity that you weren't, Chairman Lee. Michael represents all of the qualities that identify the West Tigers. That is hard work, passion, and insatiable drive to succeed. No wonder they want to get rid of him. <laughs> if those are the qualities that identify the West Tigers, how come we don't have a board that has those qualities? This is a guy that turned up with the premiership winner's ring, right? And he sat down in a demountable and said, yes, I will Let, coach this team. Let's let's just add a little bit more emphasis to the, to that premiership ring. He took a club that it had no success for 40 years and built them up so that they actually were premiership winners and they have not been a shit team since. No, nah, yeah, he, that's a very good point. And he took that team just as they were coming out of being a really bad thrown together at the last minute because they they had to team and and he turned them into a force, as you say, Still to this day, they've never been really that bad since. No, I think they've only missed the finals once, and that was not by much. Mm-hmm. Um, and they still weren't easy beats that year that they lost. No. Uh, I think they finished 10th, 10th or 11th. Um, then they come back straight into the finals anyway. Um, you know, you can't you can't knock the credentials of Michael Maguire when he's been able to turn around a club that's had that much value behind it. Mm-hmm. So... All he needed was a board, much like what he had at South, a board who would back him. The South board proved that if you back a coach and you stick with him, eventually things will turn around and things will come good. And they proved it because they actually stopped going through the cycle of just getting whatever coach was available and, and they stuck with him. After a while, you get a solid base that players say, you know what, I wouldn't mind going there. And then all of a sudden, they sign Greg Inglis. And things start to improve. And then all of a sudden, you start getting other good players, like top-of-the-line players. They come there and they want to play there because they can see that the club's going somewhere. There's something positive about it. That doesn't happen to the Tigers because every time they have yet another shit season, the people who are in control of the reason, a large reason why the club is being shit then decide to throw the coach under the bus 
that creates instability. It makes it hard for an elite player to go, you know what, I want to go to that club because I see what the coach is doing. Because they go, you know, you don't re-sign coaches, you sack them. Michael Maguire was just the second coach in the entire West Tigers history to be offered a contract extension. Tim Sheens was the other one. Mm. And even though he signed that contract extension, they've looks like they're going to sack him before he actually gets into it. Isn't that what happened with Tim Sheens as well? He didn't get to start his contract extension? Yeah, it was a bit bit convoluted with Tim Sheens. There was talk that um, he'd he'd made a verbal agreement, which is obviously not ironclad, but he gave the the board his word at the start of the 2012 season when the Tigers were tipped to be the uh, premiership favourites that year after two good seasons prior that if I don't get the Tigers into the finals this year, I'll step down as coach. And when they finished 10th, he went, I'm not going anywhere. And so the uh, the board decided to sack him, even though they still had two years on his contract. Might have been three. Yeah. Wasn't it, wasn't it Tony Montana that said that I've got two things, my word and my balls? Yeah. Well, in that case, um, Tim Sheens did not have his word, but he definitely had the West Tigers' balls. He certainly did. You know, you brought up South Sydney. By the way, I think this is episode 347 from memory. Oh, did we not do the intro? Nah, uh, fuck the intro. It's our podcast. <laughs> we can do whatever we want. You know, Russell Crowe basically took over the South Sydney Rabbitohs. And there was a lot of controversy about it because it was a different direction for the club. But he is without doubt the greatest private owner in Australian sports. And the reason is that he he stepped back and he put people in place to do the day-to-day work at the club that he knew could do the day-to-day work. But as an owner, he gave them a direction, a clear direction. And even if that clear direction was, look, there's a bunch of brothers over in England that I think we can build around to a certain extent. Or we want Greg Inglis to wear Clive Churchill's number. Or there's an assistant coach down in Melbourne called Michael Maguire, who we think can be the guy that builds this club going forward. And he gave them a direction. Every club needs a direction. Penrith needed a, a direction when Phil Gould come in. Now, you and me, we've talked about what we feel about Phil Gould, but there's no doubt that he come in and he was given the power to give him, them a direction, and they didn't have that. Sometimes that's what you need as a club is just a, a clear pathway to building. I'm not even going to su- say success. I'm just going to say building something. You know, yeah. and that's not what the West Tigers have. They throw together lineups in November. They sign players that other clubs don't want. It, they're an absolute mess of an organisation, and everything has changed about that club except really two things over the last nearly ten years. One of them's a halfback, and Brooks. You know, you you're only as good as you're going to be, and I think in the right environment, Brooks could have been a much better player. And I think he's been let down by the club. But everyone around him, and mostly the board and the CEO, they've failed. And they should all go. 
it's definitely not Maguire. You don't win a premiership and set up success like he did at the South Sydney Rabdos. To this day, they're in the preliminary final next week, and that's still the DNA of the team he had there. It's not Maguire. It's everyone else. Uh, Pasco needs to go. They need a new board. Their board needs to be open to being voted out by members of the club because it's not good enough. We've got a team in Western Sydney that has the second biggest junior base on planet Earth. It should be a, a behemoth. This is a team that's going to have its own friggin' airport. I can't believe that we're in this stage where we've got a team that's called the West Tigers that's trying to build a base at Concord. That's a disgrace. It is a disgrace. It's, they still don't know after 20 years what they're supposed to be. Mm. And that's because for the majority of it, they spent their time bickering at one another. Oh, we should be bound, man. We'll bring back West. Meh, 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 meh. Everyone like, who's pro Balmain or pro Magpies mm-hmm. should be completely removed from the club. As I said in the last episode, they can have the president of the Balmain club and the president of the Magpies club. They can be the only two people involved with those two affiliations on the board. That's it. The rest of the board needs to be made up of entirely of West Tigers-focused people with no affiliation to Balmain or the Magpies. None at all. Because... West Tigers are their own club now. They're 20 fucking years old. They're almost the same age as the Melbourne Storm. And they've been around for longer than the Illawarra Steelers were around. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, I know you're a Balmain supporter and, and, you know, we've talked about the Magpies and, look, it took the Magpies close on 20 years to, to die, basically. And the Balmain Tigers were about to die as well. And they both come together in a last-ditch effort to save some shreds of their history. But the fact of the matter is that the West Tigers have been around for longer than the Illawarra Steelers were an entity in the top grade. There's no going back. You know, they've got an opportunity to be a club that goes from the inner west out to the west and down to the southwest, they have got one of the, if not the best area in all of Sydney to have all to themselves, yep. and they're throwing it away. They're pissing it up a wall. They really are. It's ridiculous. You know, we're seeing how how much talent is in the West just by watching Penrith at the moment and the amount of young talent they've got just coming off the production line. Mm-hmm. The West Tigers have got you know, arguably a very similar size junior base to draw upon and they're not they're not attracting anything you know, well, the, if, the local talent that's out there is largely going to other clubs yeah and look if you if you looked at their possible junior base say in the next 10 years even if you looked at it as its own city it'd be like the fourth biggest city in australia easily yeah, it's, it's the most growing part of sydney by and it's not even it's not even a bloody close contest no no and the pro- the problem I see is that the Canterbury Bulldogs were looking to go down to Liverpool with their Oasis um, deal that they had in the early noughties. And so they've always had an eye on that sort of area. And the Panthers aren't just going to sit back forever and watch that area grow. Like, these teams are going to cannibalise one another eventually. Yeah. And... 
you know, the thing that worries me is that the West Tigers, they've got it all at their feet. And I worry that in 15 years from now, we say, well, you know what? Canterbury has their new stadium in Liverpool and the Panthers took over, you know, a corridor that went right down past the airport in Badgeries Creek and all that. And the West Tigers, who knows where they would be after that. They're, I hang, don't they're hanging on to about six houses in Anne Street and, or Margaret Street in Brazil. Yeah, exactly. That's about it. Exactly. Go Balmain. And look, this is a club that, you know, they, they're two main stadiums. One is a 1960s relic, and I've been very kind in saying the 60s. And the other one is an early 2000 semi-stadium. And yeah, both the, of them... the, the 1960s relic, um, that was actually first used in 1934. Yeah, almost, it's almost a century old. Yeah, and look, they, they're two of the uh, lowest stadiums in terms of the cost to run teams out of or games out of. That's why the NRL uses them when they have to. Um, the New South Wales Rugby League uses them because of that, that reason. You know, this is a team that needs an identity and a direction and under Justin Pascoe, they haven't had that. Ah, well, you know, he just constantly bangs on about how oh, we're going good financially off the field. Like, what, you know, what are you regarding as success? Is it the fact that the bank balance is good or is it what happens on the field? Eventually, mm. one's going to impact the other. Look, if somebody said to me the Penrith Panthers have been broke the last two years, I wouldn't care. No, I mean, look, I mean, the Sharks were largely broke for most of their existence. Mm -hmm. They've won more premierships in the last 10 years than the West Tigers, who have been in much better financial position. And, and something I've always said is that with a rugby league, well, an NRL club in particular, the ideal balance sheet is exact. You don't make $1 because that extra dollar that you might have made, put it into junior development. You know, put it into something where you're building the club. So... I don't care if a club says, well, we made a million dollars. It's like, well, why didn't you use that million dollars? You yeah. know, that's, well, that's a wasted million dollars. Exactly that should right. be put into something. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, like we'll, we'll, find, we'll find out this week if these peanuts decide to get rid of Maguire. I'm sure they will. Yeah, it feels like the they're putting out the information to soften the blow via their own mouthpiece, James Hood ornament. Yeah. And it's very sad. I, I, part of me is sad for Michael Maguire because when you, you watch that documentary about the West Tigers, the, you could see the drive he had to make something. And he, he was pleading with those players, absolutely pleading with them. And trying everything to get something out of them. He just got and crickets in return. He really did. It was kind of shocking to see. And But another part of me is thankful that he doesn't have that burden of of that team on him now. That if he goes to, and he'll go to another club, I think he'll get another deal. I wouldn't be shocked if he ended up being the long-term coach of the Melbourne Storm when Bellamy retires, huh? That's that's definitely uh, a very strong possibility. I also think I wouldn't be surprised if the Knights get a little bit impatient mm -hmm. and they look for someone with a bit more uh, drive than their current coach. Um, 
in the someone second, who doesn't someone who doesn't constantly blame himself. One hundred percent. Second Brisbane team as well. Yeah, that'd be Absolutely. another one. And you know what? I'd I we'll get into it in a second, but um, depending on what Parramatta are looking at, they might look at him as well. Well, that's true. I mean, they've got to be get to the point now where they go. You know what? We've been We've been a much improved team for the last few years. We need to go and be that next step better. And in order to do that, we do need to find out whether it's a personnel thing or whether it's a coach thing. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if they realised that they might need a new coach because I think Brad Arthur is one of those guys who's um, he's good at keeping the team focused. He's pretty handy looking after... Um, their defence ability. I don't think I've seen Parramatta being as consistently solid in defence as they have been under Brad Arthur these last few years. Um, but the attack is Paul McGregor type limited. Now, before we get into this Parramatta versus Penrith game, is there anything else you'd like to say about the West Tigers? Because I know as a, a supporter of the club and I, I I've, supported a club that was poor before but not like this. Is there anything else you'd like to say about them at this point? Chairman Lee's not going to get a single fucking cent from me until he fucks off. And not just him. Justin Potato as well. He's got to go as well. And you know, probably 80% of the board should all just go. Anyone who's been in that club since 2012-2013 and overseen all of these coaching changes and all of these personnel changes and all of this bullshit that's gone on, and they're still there, you're all losers. Piss off, get some winners in there. That's that's what needs to happen. Fucking sick of this team being absolute dog shit time and time again. Um, so, you know, you can sit there and wank on about how great the finances are. Eventually, the fans are going to stop giving it to you. Then what are you going to hang your hat on? Fucking nothing. That's I it. Agree. I agree completely. That's it. I'll think of something else to whinge about somewhere. Like <laughs> we'll just do another podcast episode about it. But yeah, get, I've got that much off my chest. That's what our Tuesday podcast is about. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We'll fucking get into that when um, we'll probably have an announcement by then. Oh, no. Oh, man. Anyway, so the Panthers versus Parramatta game. Um, man, this felt like a... There was a lot on this game. There was more on this game than I realised going into it. And there's a couple of things I'll say. The defence by both teams was heroic. It was a real... It it really was. Unbelievable. And it was was every fucking minute. Yeah, 80 minutes of it, yeah. It was intense. Um, The defence, I haven't seen a game that was played so well defensively by both sides for... The entire eighty minutes, there was no let up. It was it was remarkable. And you, um, you were waiting for one of them to crack, and they just didn't. I was I was genuinely waiting for Parramatta to crack. I thought mm. in on those on that left edge, I thought they were going to crack out there a few times. No, rock solid the whole time. It's not like Parramatta were, were giving me signs that they were going to crack. It's just that Penrith on their left side tend to just be so persistent and throw a lot of different things at you over there, eventually something works and they get through. But yeah, they even, just couldn't. Even if it's just, even if it's a physical breakdown of we've made so many tackles and they've tried so many times and fatigue gets you, 
and yeah. they it didn't happen. It was incredible. Insane. I've not seen anything like it. Uh, full credit to both sides. It was a phenomenal match. Um, I know Peter Valandis would have fucking hated it because there was only two tries scored. Well, I'm sure that uh, Peter Valandis was watching the game thinking, wow, women are going to be turning off this game. Yeah. Because yeah, women like high-scoring games, you know. Yeah. Um, the attack of both sides. Penrith's attack, I've said, has not looked great for a few weeks. And the Parramatta attack is kind of what we have come to expect from Parramatta when they take on more the Storm. Well, the Storm they've beaten a couple of times, but it feels like the Panthers really handled them well. A lot of it just comes down to rushing Moses a bit Mm -hmm. and coming up on the edges when Brown starts to run because that's what he likes to do. He's, you know, kind of like... um, Kalen Ponga, you'll you'll tend to see him head run towards the corner and try and have a few players on angled runs. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just rushed up a little bit on that side over there to try and shut down those options from happening. It just limited his game a little bit. Um, and Moses, when he gets shut down a few times, he just gets kick happy a lot. When he should have just gone, you know what? If you're going to rush up at me, I'm just going to run at you. He's got good footwork at the line. He should have just tried it a few times. Just, just Make the defense bloody think differently. So you let them dictate to him. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a bit of a problem there. The uh, yeah, the, the Parramatta attack can be very one-dimensional, and it has been an issue for quite a while. The Panthers, and I don't know what they've got to do there. Luiza, I find he's a problem. I don't know how they fix that in the space of a week against when they've got to come up against Melbourne. But he, to me, I think he's lost all sense of timing. Like he doesn't know when he should be, you know, the exact precise moment he should be throwing that pass left or when he should be running. He just sort of throws it before the defense has made a decision and he makes the decision for them. Yes. So they're able to shut down the play straight away. And it just means everything on the left side is just easy to read and easy to shut down. And to the point where Parramatta didn't have to put an extra player out on the on the left side to defend against him. It was just man on man which made it harder when they went back inside because it was all man-on-man the whole way through. There was no overlap anywhere. There was no chances anywhere, and it just makes it a lot harder. Yeah, and and it's weird because there's no questioning his ability. Like, oh, God, no. like his defense, first of all, is fantastic. Yep. His ability to run the ball is fantastic. He does have great timing on his passes. He does know when to pick out the, the right player with the right pass. Yep. But I agree with you. It's as though he has so many things running in his mind about what he should do that he's he's almost holding himself back. And it's really come in since he was asked to take over the playmaking when Cleary went out after Origin because of his mm. AC injury. And I, I do believe that it is a worry within him that he thinks if he gets tackled with the ball, that's one less playmaker. My personal opinion is I would say to him, forget about everything else. You're a ball runner. And if you run the ball when you've got it and anything else that comes out of your game is just a bonus for us, because as a ball runner, he's really dangerous. Um, That's what I would say to him personally. I also think it doesn't help him that kick game has been getting worse probably over the last, I would say, two months. We didn't see much of him in this game because he got a bit of a, an ankle injury, I believe it is. 
but I think that Kikau's time at the Panthers might be coming to an end. And a, a lot of it is what we've talked about over recent months where it might be addition by subtraction with Kikau. Um, he's a very good player as an athlete. He's probably in the top 2% of NRL players. But you've got to have that consistency there. And there's just not that consistency out of him. And I think that that really puts Luai off as well because when they were at their best... It was Luai was looking to run the ball, but he also had the threat of kick out and that was holding everyone up and, and they were just tearing up the competition. Um, you know, I, I think that the other thing for the Panthers is that they're, they're terrible at a dummy half at the moment. They were a little bit better on the weekend against Parramatta, but they're just not where they should be for an elite team. That's true. I wonder if they should... Yeah, not you can't do it now, but if they had done it a few weeks prior, mm-hmm. park kick out on the other side so Cleary could use him. Well, we've look we've been talking about this since the early rounds of the competition. Yes. You know? I, I think you'd get more out of kick out at the moment if you played him in the middle of the field. That's probably true too. Because mm. um, the problem he gets is the wider he gets, the closer he gets to the Ellis Corridor. Mm-hmm. I love the fact we've created that. Um, All right. <laughs> the closer he gets to that, the more he runs towards the sideline. Mm-hmm. And he sh- the wider he gets it there, the more he should be trying to run back infield. Because yeah. when you get a body that big running towards the corner, your momentum is running in the wrong direction. You're a lot easier to push into touch than a smaller guy. Yeah, you can be handled. Yeah. You know, even if the defense just holds back and slides, you're already running towards the sideline. You're not running at the... Yeah. The trial line. You're doing half the work for him. Well, you, you can just get Tom Opechik to push you. Yeah. Off you go. Um, so, yeah, he's... Uh, I think he's... This year, he's tried to be a little bit too cute with what he does. Mm-hmm. When he's got to realise that, mate, you're a behemoth. Just try and destroy some people. Mm-hmm. Hey, you're a big tank. Frank the tank. That's you. Exactly. And, and I... I really do. I think maybe move him to the middle of the field and and because I think they would get more out of him in the middle of the field. Now, one of the things I want to say in this game, I want to talk about is the refereeing. Ashley Klein was the referee, mm. and I don't know who the video referee was, but I thought overall the refereeing in this game was very poor. Um, things were handled poorly for both teams, but I'm definite that the worst of the decisions went against Parramatta. And I felt very sorry for Parramatta in some of the decisions. And there were two, there was three, sorry, that stood out for me. There was one where there was a mistake by Penrith and they, and I didn't even see it on a replay, but they said that there was a late hit off the ball and Penrith retained the ball because of that. I didn't understand that call. And I think some of these late hits off the ball are ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Oh, yeah. The I mean, second one. For some of them, the... you can't even, you know, the player is already committed to the tackle. And sure, it may be a fraction late, but as as every good commentator says, where are they supposed to go? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, too, if I get the ball and I run at the line and I pass it, not watching the line, by the way, but I pass it the last second and I get smashed. Yeah. That's on me. Yeah, you you deserve that. Yeah, 
that's why teams used to play with depth, so that didn't happen. Exactly right. Now you get a penalty. Um, the second one was there was a, a pass from Stone out of dummy half. It was a very poor pass, and they called it a knock-on. It was at a crucial stage. I think it went back. I think it clearly went back. This and is, I'll, I'll just say this, just sorry to, to pop in there, but uh, this has been a problem that's been going on for quite a while in the NRL, and that is as soon as a ball hits the ground, more often than not, they just go, knock on. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd say at least half the time, that ball has not gone forward. It's been propelled backwards. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I did see that one. I thought that's – not only is that harsh, that's just wrong. Completely wrong. And they tried to they tried to um, challenge it, and they weren't allowed to challenge it because they said it was a forward, it was a forward pass, and it just wasn't. And yeah. that was a really crucial one. The last one was – and this one was disgraceful. The the Eels were attacking the line very late in the game. They had three tackles up their sleeve, and the play was stopped because the Panthers player had had his foot trod on. Oh, yeah, was, I did see that. Yeah. Now, he was in pain. I, I, I'm not taken away from that. I don't know if he's got a, a long-term injury or not. But he was behind the play, and it was just the worst time, like it was the worst possible time in their whole season to stop the play. It was terrible. And I, I just, you know, we've got to do something about it. Cause there was a play earlier in the game, much earlier in the game where play was stopped because Wonga Blake was leaving the field, but Wonga Blake wasn't on the field. He was actually over the sideline and walking up the sideline. With a, he was getting a HIA, and for the Panthers to be able to stop the play, it's just not what rugby league was is about. It just isn't. You no. know, if somebody has a spinal injury, stop the play. <laughs> yeah, but or if they've got a leg that's pointing the wrong wrong way, stop the play. You know. Yeah, yeah. when they're when they're pretty fucking obvious, but there's something really bad going on. Yeah. Yeah, but if you can get a player, or if a player can get themselves off the field under their own medal, then you don't need to stop the play. If if the one trainer can help them get off the field, you don't need to stop the play. If they're down in back play, you don't need to stop the play. And there's, that's, it almost seems, I'm not saying it was the case, but it almost seemed like it was a... Um, intentional thing by parents to some extent to try and make the game as stop start as possible. And in that extent, it did kind of work, but I, I'm not saying it was. Cause I'm just saying that it just happened so many times against Parramatta. It just comes across that way. But, you know, it's... That's the problem with rules, though, is that clubs will find a way to, to exploit them, and Penrith were not the first. It's happened several times this year. Yeah, look, it's happened all year, and it came up once again in that that West Tigers documentary where yep. there was a player that was injured, and the rules state you can stop the play if there's a player that needs taken from the field. But we saw behind the scenes the curtains were pulled back, and Maguire is yelling into the thing, "Tell them to stop the play! Tell yep. them to stop the play!" and that has stuck with me ever since I saw that. Yep. And when you see it in a sudden death final match, 
and it was crucial. And look, if the Panthers could have stopped any set of six halfway through in the whole season, it was that set of six, and it was really costly for the Parramatta Eels. Um, I, I really do. I felt that the Eels had a lot of really bad decisions go against them. And granted that they found it very difficult to, you know, they didn't really get a chance to look like they were going to score against the Panthers for the last about 60 minutes. No. But, you know, when things go against you that were that crucial that many times in a game, I did feel sorry for Parramatta. And one thing that come out of it after the game for me I didn't feel joyous about it. And James Smith brought it up from the Dead in Goal podcast. He said, like, are we allowed to enjoy the fact that we won a, a semifinal? Um, and he said that on Twitter. And I don't know, just within me, it wasn't a game I really enjoyed. And it was a game that I I thought that we, were, we, we got away with the win and we were... I think we were the better team on the night, not by much. And the scoreline shows that. But the thing that come out of it for me is how I felt winning the game was not great. I can't imagine how devastating that loss was for the Parramatta Eels. Yeah, it's it's always rough when the game is not decided entirely by the players on the field. Mm. And that was generally the case last night. And I mean... Regular listeners of this podcast know that we are not ref bashers. No. But at the same time, we also, we're also realists. We know that refs are not always going to have a good game. But last night was far from just your regular poor performance from Klein. It was very bad to the point where it didn't look like he had much control of what was going on. He was kind of winging it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Almost, You almost got the impression that he went out there premeditated to make sure that he didn't pull up play too often if, you know, if you could help it for penalties and stuff like that. But incidents on the field forced his hand somewhat. And he was sort of conflicted with a lot of decisions. And when you get like that, you tend to make too many of them wrong. And I think that's that's kind of the way I was looking at it, is he just looked like he was conflicted within himself over what he should do because he had a premeditated plan as to how he was going to officiate the game to start with and then it turned out to be something completely different to what he expected and he was conflicted the whole way through and he just kept making just bungle after bungle it was just horrible to watch and the fact that the game was still such a fascinating spectacle for the full 80 minutes Mm. is a testament to what the players did in spite of the way he officiated it yeah I'd agree And, and I think the fact that there were so many captains challenges that went against the decisions that were made on field. And we're comp- you and me completely against the captain's challenges. I would scrap them this week if I could. This is the dumb thing about it too, is that if you're going to have a captain's challenge system, you bring it in and you'll let the captains use it whenever they need to, or you don't have it at all. The fact that yeah. they can only have it for some incidents and not all of them, what's the point? Yeah, and look, it stops the, it stops the game dead. We take yeah. like three or four minutes where we're just standing around waiting for somebody in Redfern to make a decision on what happened. And the number one referee in every single NRL game from about, I don't know, it was something like round eight onwards, 
stop being the guy in the middle of the field and started being somebody in a bunker in Redfern. Yep. And that that's like that was really quiet the way that happened. But you and me picked up on it straight away and we were like, this is wrong. And that's continued throughout the entire season. And um, I don't know, I just felt there was something about the game. I, I was happy we won. And it's cool we get to take on the storm, but there was something about the game that didn't sit right with me. And I think maybe it was the refereeing and the fact that there's all of this garbage that the NRL's added to these games. I, I'm just not enjoying rugby league at the moment. It's it's not a good game to watch. Yeah, it's it's a horrible product at the moment. It, it's difficult to enjoy. And to the point now where the game has been so hard to watch for so long this year that I'm struggling to get excited about watching the finals. Yeah. So when an, when an actual genuine contest happens that isn't a, just one team scoring 50 fucking points, I've already decided in my head, oh, this is going to be just another one of those crap games, so I'm not going to really pay much attention to it. Mm-hmm. You just tune in, you look at the score where you're doing something else, and you go, oh, hang on, it's a close game. And by the time you're tuned in, it's you know, too late. You've already missed three quarters of the match. Can can I ask can I ask you your opinion on like the Eels' defence was fantastic in this game? I'm not taking away from what they did, but can I ask your opinion as a neutral supporter on the Panthers' defence? Because what I'm seeing personally is absolutely unbelievable and something I don't think I've ever seen before. Um, no, the, the we we witnessed last night the two best defensive structured outfits playing in the NRL this year. Um, that, that's my opinion anyway. Penrith have been the best defensive team for the last two years. Easy. Yeah. And as I said, the, yeah, I went on about this last year. Is that Everyone talked about how Penrith are always winning in their attack and stuff like that. I went, no one was paying any attention to the fact that their defense was insanely good. They made strong first contact. They wrapped the ball up. And if they didn't, there was always another guy there to help them do that. And as soon as the ball come out, it's all eyes up football. They break out of that tackle and they get back in the line. And so there's no chance for the opposition to quickly try and exploit a gap somewhere. And an opposition attacking unit has to throw every fucking thing they can at them to get through them. And then in order to get through, you've got to have luck. They're just that tough to get through. Um, And it's based on a really solid uh, system, and that is, you know, you work in pairs and you you slide, but you don't slide too fast because the the, the attacking team are going to be moving faster. So you want to try and make sure that when you, you slide, you're covering the inside more than the outside and you're pushing them towards the sideline because your sideline is a defender you can't beat. Mm-hmm. Once you hit the sideline, you're out. So that's what they do. They're, it's not compressed. They just don't slide as fast as a lot of other teams do. You, you look at, say, the West Tigers when their edge slides. They just sprint. And all, you, all your opposition's got to do is just stop or step inside or throw an inside ball and go, oh, look, everyone's gone into row Z. <laughs> There's this big gap yeah. in the middle of the field. You just walk through and score. Penrith don't do that. Their hesitation and their line is all over the place. And that's the thing about Penrith. Like, you throw a bit of hesitation at this Penrith side and you're you're looking at a, a black wall of defence 
That's right. And as I said, that's, that's because they don't slide as fast. So it means if you try an inside play, an inside ball, a step, something like that, you try and do something unique, the defense hasn't overshot the play. They're, yeah. just a, they're just half a step behind it, which means they're immediately in place to affect the tackle. And the thing that I'm really impressed with Ivan Cleary's coaching, and I think that there's definite downsides to his coaching, but one of the things that he's done with this team is that he's got a lot of different plays that are a very different um, makeups physically and have different strengths and weaknesses physically. And, but he has drilled them to a point where you get someone like a, a Leota next to somebody like an Isaiah Yo, and you go through their list, like you get a kick out in there. So many different body shapes, so many different types of player, and he has them just working as one unit, and they never break. And it's just, it's incredible to me that we saw a game last night where for 80 minutes, and Parramatta did the same thing mostly, for 80 minutes, Penrith was smashing Parramatta. And you could see early on that the Parramatta Eels were like, we're going to go through the middle of the Panthers. And they kept trying, you know, that that's the thing about that game. Like Parramatta kept trying to go through the middle of the Panthers and the Panthers were there for 80 whole minutes smashing them. Yeah. See, that's the thing I think for, for Parramatta is that they decided to stick with the game plan that worked with Reed Mahoney in the side mm. because he's very sharp. They very missed strong, him, didn't they? Very strong ball runner in the middle. And mm. yeah, they missed him big time because they were not getting that spark and that drive from dummy half through the middle that they got from him mm-hmm. or the service for that matter. Um, and that's not to disrespect who field is. It's just the fact that he is genuinely that much better than, you know, most hookers in the game. Yeah. He had that much of an impact on that side. You took him out of there and a lot of their attacking prowess, not just when in point scoring position, just making meters through the middle at the start of a set that was gone. Yeah. So they had to slog. And full credit to them. They did that slog for 80 minutes, and they kept in the game despite that. Um, but when they really needed points and they really needed to, you know, threaten the Panthers' line, they just didn't have that creativity out of dummy half that, that Mahoney brings to the side, and they missed him immensely. I haven't seen a club miss a hooker that much uh, in a long time. I, I agree. And, like, Stone defensively has been outstanding. Um, oh, yeah. but, and, and look, Mooney in in attack, what what would he be? He might be like the fourth or fifth best hooker, depending on what day it is, you know, in, in terms of attacking off the back of a, a pack like the Eels have. Um, yeah, they really, really missed him. He's one of the best. And that that's, I think for me, that was the one deciding factor. Yes. Yeah. Coruscant wasn't brilliant, and I think no. Mahoney at his uh, at his standard, he gives you a seven out of ten just on his standard performance. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been enough to outdo Coruscant, and it might have been enough just to get Parramatta maybe one more try, or at least get them in a position where they're starting to push Penrith a bit more. Um, and that's that's generally what they miss. Uh, Moses misses him a lot too. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, what did you think about the Panthers 
passing up a couple of really easy penalty kicks because I've always felt like if you're in a final, unless you're smashing the opposition team, you take the two points and they will give two points twice. So they would have won the game. If they had to kick them both, they would have won the game by six points. Now, obviously, things aren't always going to go the same way. But what are your thoughts on you get to give two points in the semi-final? Typically, you take it. But this, this Panther side, because it's young, they thrive on positive play. Mm-hmm. And a negative play, like kicking a penalty goal for a lot of teams, is seen as a negative play. Like, oh, we, we, don't, we don't think we're going to be able to score more points. So we have to take whatever we can find. Yeah. And so it comes across a bit of a negative thing. Um, so in order to keep themselves positive and playing off the front foot the whole time, they go, you know what, let's keep attacking them and we'll try and crack them. Because, and let's be honest, they've been doing that all year. Yeah. And it's worked. So why change a winning formula? That's the other thing that comes into it as well. So I think it's, I understood why they went against that. Mm-hmm. And to an extent, it probably did help in some extent because it meant they just forced Parramatta to just keep defending sets and sets and sets. And it just it took so much out of the Eels players when it came to attack. They would just, you know, they're a little bit more gas. So they couldn't run with the same amount of vigor and it made them a little bit easier to defend. Uh, yeah. So it probably had a kick-on effect there, but... Yeah, typically I'd just be saying, if you get a chance at a penalty goal, I don't care what the situation is in the game, you take the freaking goal. Yeah, look, I'm sure that they've got statistical people that have sat down and said, like I know in the NFL, they literally have a chart as to when you take a two-point conversion or when you take, you know, or when you don't, you just take the one point um, after a touchdown. I, I wonder if we have that in rugby league. I don't think we probably do because there's a lot more um, uncertainty in the way that the kicks will go. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Got some breaking news for you, mate. Some breaking news. What is that, Andrew? It's uh, There's talk that Manly might be about to sign a former Kangaroos Test superstar. Wow, who is it? Aaron Woods. Ah, oh, well, you know, he's the softest cunt in the NRL. <laughs> Everyone needs some pillows around. <laughs> It'll be good. He can make 250 metres from kickoffs. <laughs> That's right. He's he's going to be just powerful. Um, I dare say Des is getting him because of his um, magnificent ability to get the ball on a crash play and instead of actually running to the line, just ditching it to the next person next to him. He loves that. Yeah. On top of that, you'll be able to watch Manly games and see Andrew John sexualize him. <laughs> Who doesn't like that? <laughs> that? That beats watching Matty John's watching himself and doing the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Um, the other news, too, is Ash Taylor could be going to the Warriors. <sighs> that's a rough one. Like you and me said that there'll be a team that will get desperate and that will sign him. I don't know about you, but I reckon that there are at least 10 teams that would take Harris Tavita as their halfback tomorrow. I would. Yeah, yeah. 
Look, if he signed for Penrith, and we've got two halves, we're good for halves. But if he signed for Penrith, I would be over the moon. Well, if he signed for Penrith, I'd be going, see, Jerome, it was nice having you, mate. I uh, hope, hope you have a good career. <laughs> on your bike, he, pal. He's a fantastic player. I've always been pretty big on him. I think that it's a travesty that the Warriors haven't just given him the keys. I think that the... I think Nathan Brown has given him the keys to a certain extent, but I just I can't believe that they would even think of Ash Taylor. I think that there are teams in the competition that could maybe use Ash Taylor and forget how much he was on at the war at the uh, Titans, but I think there are teams that could use a player of his not first grade quality caliber, but. The Warriors uh, I, are not one of them. I don't see him as NRL quality. No. I don't think no. I ever have. There's no... If, if someone said to me, I give you the task of putting together a five-minute highlights package of Ash Taylor, I would be making sure I've got that thing slowed down as much as possible. And it might just be him doing a sidestep. It's just and just slowing it down so you see it over just one sidestep over five minutes. There's so little to choose from for me. Um, I just no, nah, I I don't see the value in him even at 150, 200 grand a year. There's he, just there's nothing in him for me. I, he's got a non-existent kicking game as far as a, attacking ability. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not much thought to his game in attack. It's usually just plays what he thinks is right, and half the time it's wrong. Very, very wrong. His hands can often just abandon him. Sometimes he comes out there, and instead of having hands, it's like he's just attached a couple of mop heads to the ends of his arms. So what the hell is this? You're just dropping dropping the ball with no one around you? What the fuck is going on? At the same time, you know, he's become a dad, so apparently that means something. Yeah, does, does becoming a, I mean, becoming a dad obviously changes you. But did it make you a better footballer? Me personally, mm-hmm. immensely better. <laughs> immensely better. My problem was age. Ah, you were just past the age of being a first grader. Huh? Yeah, I wasn't thirty anymore. Ah, damn it! That was still you, you'd qualify for a Super League career. Um, I still, yeah, still, I'm, I'm, I've still got my manager <laughs> in that area, in that realm. Um, COVID's. COVID's impacted me because I don't want to travel to England yeah, while there's COVID going on. Yeah. Co- that's, yeah. That's I, I see that issue sure. with travelling to England before COVID. Who wants to go to fucking England? I don't, don't want a bit of gravy on chips every now and then. Not every day, but every now and then. <laughs> How good is fish and chips in England, though, hey? I'll, I'll say this, and I'll say this in all sincerity. Um, the Magpie Cafe in Whitby, mm-hmm. the best fish and chips, bar none, worldwide. I've had fish and chips in Whitby. I don't know where it was that I got it, but, uh, yeah, it was it was good. I, I, I got fish and chips all over the UK. I must have spent, when you take into account the exchange rates at the time in 2006, I'm willing to say I probably spent close to $500 on fish and chips. That's that's a solid amount. Yeah, yeah. I didn't go that far, but, uh, yeah. The, the place you went to a Whippy, was it near the bridge that goes across? Oh, I, I, look, I can't remember. 
at all. But I, I, I got a, I got fish and chips at a place in Hull. I don't think it's there anymore. Um, for we're those that went up by the health department. <laughs> I, I don't know. It was. I tell, tell people that they're listening. It was on the little main street that went up from Zoology, which was a pub on the corner, which is I got kicked out of once. Um, and well, I'm not I, surprised given the amount of talk you do about eating animals. <laughs> well, sure you offended someone. No, I just I remember the day I went into it, and I decided I was going to write myself off. And it was the day of a, um, it was one of the big soccer. It might have been a the European Champions League semi final, and I think it was Manchester United versus Celtic or something. And I just started drinking pints of beer, like. I, I don't even remember how many I got to, but I remember the com- them coming up to me and saying, we're going to have to ask you to leave. And I said, give me three minutes and I will leave. <laughs> and that was good. They gave me three minutes. Oh, there you go. That was nice of them. Yeah. I was wondering if they wanted you to leave because your bar fridge was taking up too much space because you would have needed that to keep cooling the beer down. I actually, the I did have a warm beer in Hull. Um, I think it was a John Smith's from memory. How was it? It, it was <laughs> it was kind of shocking. I was like, oh, there's there's that warm beer that the Poms like. <laughs> oh dear, dear. That's uh, good good times, good times. It was good times, man. I tell you what, I left that pub. I went and I got a hamburger with the lot and a diff- there was a second hamburger I liked to get. I can't remember what it was. And I took them back to my hotel, started scoffing them down and then fucking puked everywhere. That's a ticket. It was good fun. <laughs> and then I got fish and chips the next day. <laughs> Getting fish and chips in England is yeah. the easiest thing to do. It really is. That was the place where I had um, fried spam the first time. Yeah, I'll tell you what. Not interested in that one. <laughs> Have you never had it? Don't care for it. I'll tell you what, not bad. Yep, yeah, um, take your word for it. Yeah. Did I have it with mushy peas? I used to, i tell you what, I used to get a, a full fish, which was like about a foot and a bit long. Right, yeah. I used to get that, and I used to either get curry or mushy peas, um, and I'd get a, an, an extra thing. That was when I used to be able to eat like a horse, and it didn't matter. Was was the extra thing sick? <laughs> it was what you call heart disease. Oh yeah, right. That, that, that's not surprising whatsoever. Yeah, um, a fascinating trip down England's memory lane that we had just there. Wonderful. Um, what else has been going on in the world of rugby league? Uh, not much else, really, that I can think of. Can you think of anything else that's been going on in rugby league that has come up? I know that the the NRL is looking at sanctioning the Penrith trainer that called stop to the play while Penrith was defending their line and Parramatta had three sets of tackles, which to me is like, what are you going to do? Like, that doesn't do anything for Parramatta. Can I say it? Can I say it? Yeah. Bit fucking late now. Yeah, exactly. 
that horse has bolted. It's done 15 laps. It's It's gone. Yeah, it's gone. You know, we haven't talked about it with the Parramatta Eels yet. Considering the way that their season went and, I mean, is Brad Arthur's job on the line still? Look, you'd think it wasn't because they're, they're still a top, you know, essentially a top, top five, top six team in the NRL. And it's pretty, you know, they're a good distance ahead of the next 10 teams. So you'd think that on that alone, um, he's going to be safe. But I, I would suggest that if Parramatta genuinely want to try and capitalise on this window they're in at the moment, because I still think they're in their premiership window, mm-hmm. um, they do need another coach, a better coach. I think yeah. Brad, Arthur, Brad Arthur has taken on as far as he is competently capable of doing. Um, and I think he's done a lot better than I ever thought he would do. Um, I didn't rate him as a coach initially, and you know he struggled for quite a while with that Parramatta side. Um, there's obviously a lot of factors involved as to why you were struggling there, but um, if you're listening, West Tigers, Parramatta stuck with him. Look what happened. Isn't it amazing how that happens? Um, so, yeah, I guess it's trying to figure out whether they can bring in other assistants to help help him make up those extra few percentage points to take him from being a top six team to a top two team or a premiership team or whether they just need a new coach. But I think that's that's all they need to sort of focus on. Um, and whoever they bring in, being another assistant on a head coach, they need to work on getting Moses to run again. Yeah. Is, we all remember what he, what he was doing at the start of last year when he was running the ball. He was destroying teams single-handedly, and that's what he does with his running game when it's on song. And for too much of the last... 18 months, it's just been him kicking to corners. It's just, you need more than that from your halfback. I think if I was Parramatta, I, 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 I definitely think that there's a time where a coach has done everything he can. And I think Brad Arthur is probably at that point now. And I would sit down with the rest of the board and say, Wayne Bennett's available. We've got the money because Parramatta is a, a pretty wealthy club and we'd be stupid to not make Wayne Bennett a godfather offer. And even if it was just for two years, because I, I feel like Wayne Bennett wouldn't want too long of a deal, but I think that it would be, you know, Parramatta is a team that doesn't need much more. And I think Wayne Bennett, you, even if you got him for two years, I think he could do something for you. At the very least, he would tell you whether you've got the ability with this playing staff to go that extra step. So would you get Bennett as being head coach or would you get him in as a coaching director? I'd 100% get him as head coach. I don't believe in coaching directors, hey? Yeah. It's just something that's that's come up that uh, what Phil Gould did. That's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and, uh, like, you, you look at that Penrith situation, if you say that Phil Gould was the general manager and he got rid of Ivan Cleary the first time around, brought in Griffin, got rid of Griffin when they are in fourth spot, brought back, back Cleary eventually, and then they moved Gould on. 
And Gould was like, well, this is the natural progression of the Panthers. And everyone that was there at the club was that they wouldn't need him anymore. And he was right in that sense. But I would also suggest that Ivan Cleary was saying to people, I'm not doing this with Gould over me again. Not, I'm not having him with the axe waiting. Because the fact of the matter is that first grade coaches are weird people and they all believe that they know how to win a premiership. That's why they're first grade coaches. And to have one of those people above you every time you don't win a grand final, they're all thinking, well, I would have won it. That's know? right, yeah. So, yeah, I don't believe in coaching directors. No, I've never been really sold on them myself. Mm. Uh, I just think, yeah, all coaches, if they're going to be any good, they've got to have some element of ego about them. Mm. And you can't have two egos trying to run a team. No. no I kind of saw a bit of that bickering sort of stuff going on at Penrith when Ivan Clear went over there with, with Dust still around. Yeah. And you just as, yeah, sorry, I was just going to it's just that sense that the things weren't seated well. True. And, and I think that from a player's point of view, in rugby league anyway, the boss is the coach. And yeah. I, I don't even think the boss really is the chairman or the owner or anyone like that because they're they're a little bit um, separated from the day-to-day running of the club and the team. At a I proper that, club, yes. Yes, yes. And so, yeah, I think the boss has, has got to be one person and it has to be the coach. And I think that the Melbourne Storm is the best example of that. Yeah, no, I fully agree. Um, so, yeah... I, that's what's going to be interesting about getting Tim Sheens in at the West Tigers. Yeah. I, I, like, it's an interesting situation because if Sheens, Sheens would, to make the job work in that sense, I feel as though he would have to be a step away from the first grade side and just be involved in the juniors. Like, if I saw... Sheen's involved in the first grade side too much. That would be a real worry to me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Who do you reckon will be the, if they get rid of Maguire, who do you reckon it would be that would take over? Um, It's going to be someone, because, you know, they typically tend to go with two or three but at least one really bad coach after they've had a decent one. <laughs> um, so after Wayne Pierce, um, they had Terry Lamb, mm-hmm. and they had Tim Sheens, and after that they had Mick Potter, Jason Taylor, then Ivan Cleary and Michael Maguire. So they actually had two good coaches in a row there, which is very rare. So they're probably due to really really bad ones now. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if it's uh, Sean Wayne mm-hmm. comes in. Um, followed by uh, maybe Wally Lewis. Imagine that. That'd be and great. And then, oh, well, look, maybe not Wally Lewis. That's probably being a bit, a bit, a bit facetious. Robert Let's Stout. go with say Brad Fittler. Oh, Brad Fittler. I they might bark up that tree. Brad um, be too bad. I don't think actually. Yeah, I, you're not a I, fan. 
I don't think if, if Brad Fittler was able to take the team and just say, look, we're just going to walk on Leichhardt Oval barefoot, just, you know, feel the spirit of the ground coming through your soul. That's what you're playing for this weekend. I don't think it's going to work. Don't you feel like Brad Fittler also has enough people around him that would say, Brad, no? Um, probably not. Oh, really? No, because see, at the Tigers, I think he'd probably get paid more to coach at the Tigers than he would for New South Wales. I think they'd say, Brad, we notice the Tigers aren't winning. Have you considered talking to um, yeah, the coach whisperer? And Brad would go, that's a fucking great idea. The coach whisperer. So why are we all whispering? Because that's what the coach whisperer does. It'll work. That's, that's what it'll do. All right, we're going to do whispering and shoes off on Leichhardt Oval, and this is going to make us win. And they'll lose like 15 games in a row, and then they'll win a game. You go, I told you. It was just around the corner. I knew it was coming. Job done. And the West Tigers will go, eh, we found our spiritual team and our spiritual leader. Let's sign this bloke up for another 15 years, and that's what they'll do. Do you but, reckon yeah. that within the next, let's put a, let's say eight years, Somebody at the West Tigers, and I love this man. He's he's one of my he's a soulmate of mine. He doesn't even know it, but do you reckon somebody at the West Tigers sits down and says to Benji Marshall, Benji, we need somebody that knows rugby league to coach this team, and Benji just sort of falls into the job a little bit. I don't know if Benji would be a head coach. Mm-hmm. I think he's he'd be someone like Farah would be an assistant coach. I I don't even think Farah would actually make that bad of head coach. Mm-hmm. Seen him on the documentary, he gets the small things that need to be done on the field that most people take for granted. Um, Farah understands all those little things. I think it just comes from you know being being at nine, being at the front the whole time, and all the plays start with you, and you know you understand defense as well. So. I think Farrah would probably make a, a pretty pretty good assistant coach. I don't think he's I don't know how much actual training he's had in that area yet. I'm not sure it's much. But I think if you got him some decent coaching in that area, I think he'd be a very handy assistant coach. Benji though, I'm not too sure. Because he was not a structured player. And no. I think the the people who make the best coaches are structured players. That's why Wally Lewis was not a good coach. He was just off the cuff. And, um, and the truly great players too, I, I think that they struggle because they know that in situations they their greatness shone. You know, yeah. their ability to perform above and beyond everyone else, that was the reason they were so great. And so there's a certain point where they just miss that ability from their team to be great like they were. Like Wally Lewis was is a great example of it. You know, Wally Lewis could single-handedly win a game with the worst team over any opponent, didn't matter who it was. Um, and and to, you can't draw that out of a team. No, I think you, we see that a bit with Ricky Stewart. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Ricky Stewart was as much of a, um, you know, is you know play what you see sort of player. I think there was a little bit of structure about him. Yeah, but uh, I think Stewart's skill set was so 
insanely good. I think I don't think a lot of people recognise how great a halfback he was yeah. in every aspect of the game. Um, I think a lot of it gets forgotten because he's become a coach. People just see him as a coach now. But if you ever get a chance, watch some Ricky Stewart matches, highlights, whatever you like. Had one of the greatest dummies any player's ever had. His kicking game, my fucking God, that thing was just... I I, I swear, he has, you know, of all the players that have played the game, he had pretty much close to the most perfect kicking game a player could have. Mm-hmm. Um, long passing game. Him and him and Johns are almost equal for the long passing game. Johns a much better defender. Ricky wasn't a bad. Um, but and Johns, I think, was a better support player. Mind you, when you're Ricky Stewart and you've got a heap of, you know, superstars around you, what the fuck are you doing being a support player? You just pass that shit out there and let the magic take over. But uh, yeah. I don't think there's I don't think there's a great deal of gap between Andrew Johns and Ricky Stewart as players. Yeah, I, I would say that in terms of kicking game, like Johns is really the only one I can think of that is at that sort of level. Um, I think Johns, like the thing that people, the thing to remember is Ricky Stewart was kind of like the first person to have a kicking game of that level. And Johns added his nuance to Ricky Stewart's kicking game that he'd seen. Yeah. And so it's hard to like that. It's, it means so much to be the first to have a kicking game at that level. Um, and look, if you took Ricky Stewart and brought him into today's game, he has the best kicking game in the competition today. Easy. Like that's, that's what his level was. He changed games with his kicking game. Um, and I agree with you. I think that the, the, the big difference was probably defense. And whenever you had Ricky Stewart in your side, you never worried about him defensively. But the thing with Johns was that he was so strong and robust as a player that he could properly hit you hard. Yeah. And like even Ricky Stewart always needed to have a really good defender next to him, just in case he needed that help. Mm. Joey just didn't. And so that made it so much easier to have a defensive line set when you know your seven doesn't need protecting. Yeah. Yeah. And that changes a lot of things in a team. Um, that's the large reason why Joey is is better than in, than Ricky. But as I said, I don't think there's a great deal in him. I also um, I also would say that like because of John's early career at rep level where he was played at hooker, mm-hmm. it, I think that that helped him really hone his ability to know when to run the ball as a halfback, and I think it helped his defense as well. Uh, the penalty is defensive, especially the technique that he used to tackle. 100%. And the thing that, because Ricky Stewart played in that great Canberra team, and even New South Wales to a certain extent, the players that he was working with, I think, were in some sense better than Andrew Johns. So he would put the players on, and the players around Ricky Stewart would kind of finish it all off. Whereas there were times where Johns had to be the one that, really would break the line with his running game or finish the playoff with backing up, you know? So yeah. it's interesting. But, yeah, like if you dropped Ricky Stewart as he's peaking to today's game, not even – and I'm a huge fan of Cleary, who I think is the best halfback in the game. Ricky Stewart's the best halfback in the game today, and it's not even close. Stewart's phenomenal. Uh, yeah. 
a lot of people love watching the Raiders play because of, you know, either Mal or Mullins or, you know, you name it, any any sort of player in there. I, I watched Canberra just for Ricky Stewart because the way he controlled a game, the way he could turn it, just with a kick, mm. um, his passing, he was, he was one of the first, to, you know, the occasional trick pass here and there, the mm-hmm. odd no-look pass, things like that. Um, but his long ball, my God. He's cut out past these long balls. He was doing flat passes before anyone knew even knew what the hell they were. Yeah, it was it was him and then the Johns brothers sort of come along off the back of him. Yeah. Johns and, and the Kamal, and Brett Kamali as well. Those mm-hmm. like it was all happening at the same time. But yeah, it's definitely John as you said, Johns did take take um Stewart's game to the next level. But yeah, that's that's pretty much sad there, I think. Um yeah, and you know, I suppose we, you know, we're going back to coaches, and, and that's why people like sort of unknown players become really good coaches. I think. Yeah, and I think that it's a lot of the times it's fringe first graders who I think whether they have studied the game to try and get into the top thirteen or even into the top seventeen, you know that. And it's a certain sort of personality as well. I think that's a massive part of it, that you look at all of the first-grade coaches and they're kind of weird people. And I, I don't I don't think that that's a mistake. No. No. You know, we've, we've joked on this podcast that you don't want to be caught at a party talking to a first-grade coach because they'll bore the fucking tears out of your eyes, you know? <laughs> And I think although, that although to... let's be honest, I'm a historian. I can probably relate. <laughs> You'd love it. <laughs> I'd, I was sitting there going, "Oh, really? Tell me more about block play A." Who do? You, how far do you reckon you'd have to go back before? Because there's obviously different levels of coaching, and I, I think that Jack Gibson was a turning point in coaching, probably. Um, and I feel like maybe before him, you would get the people in that were coaches that were actually pretty fun to be around <laughs> or not fun, but just interesting people. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, no, I know when the, when the game first began, teams didn't actually have like genuine coaches. It was just, it was the captain's job to run training drills and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you didn't start seeing actual coaches become a regular thing until probably mid twenties. And even then, that wasn't all clubs and it wasn't consistent. Um, you didn't start getting that generally across all clubs until after World War Two, when, you know, having an actual coach was a, a, the done thing to do. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's some coaches you just have to look at and go, you know what, they, they generally had something about them that made the players better. And I think the two from the past that stand out for me are um, Duncan Thompson Mm-hmm. And Arthur Holloway. And Arthur Holloway is the first, and I'm going to say this, only super coach. Because he's won more premierships as a coach than any other coach has. So why is he not the super coach? Yeah. And he did it across several generations, some as captain coach, some as a coach, and he did it with different clubs. What more has he got to do? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he's... He's the pinnacle. I don't. I don't see anyone's going to top him. 
and to have done it as he's, you know, I think most of his coaching was done in the space of about a 30 year period as a player in the, you know, just after or after and during World War One, mm-hmm. leading up to the tail end of World War Two, that was the period he coached. As I said, the first four years of it was as a player, player coach, and then just in and out of clubs after that, and creating dynasties that insane, like the Balmain dynasty from 1915 to 1920. That was him. Mm-hmm. That East side with Dave Brown at 34. 34, 35 through to 37, 38. Guess who was coached there again? And he went and coached Norse and helped get them back into finals football. And then he went back to East and won another premiership with them in the you know late 40s. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Duncan Thompson was doing similar. Like he saw during games when he was the Australian test selector. You know, he saw in, a, in one test match at halftime, he went up to Keith Holman and says, mate, that it's English defenders, they're waiting for you to do something, and you're doing it before, you know, they have to decide what to do. Run the ball. And sure enough, second half, Holman runs the ball nearly every single time, gets me into the match, Australia wins the test. Mm-hmm. Just, he's, I have a detail in his fact that he could pinpoint what each player should do and when they should do it. Even when he's talking to the absolute greats of the game, he can make them that 1% better. That's what a great coach does. And, I mean, he's the bloke who helped teach Wayne Bennett do what he does. Yeah. You know, and so those two for me, those are your super coaches. Everyone else branches out from there. And I'm not taking anything away from Jack Gibson. What he did as well is pretty phenomenal. And he doesn't come from either of those two. So he's done his own thing from his own experiences and stuff like that. Um, So he rightly deserves that title. But... um, I'm less inclined to give any modern coaches that that title at this stage. Yeah, I get that. You know, the the one coach that I find really interesting is Clive Churchill because coming from being a great, great, great player, I, and I consider him the greatest player of all time, um, to go into co- – the, the weird thing about Churchill is he went into coaching and was successful as well and then went into administration and was successful. Like, he was just – everything he did was a success. Yeah. And it's the the fact, and we talked about it before, that a great player going into coaching really is a great coach, and he was able to get results. Yeah, he bucked that trend. Yeah, I just find that phenomenal. And then he went into administration and was good at it. It's, you know, and that to me is – part of the overall thing of Clive Churchill's he was just a a great great person and uh everything you read about him is just phenomenal everybody talks about him with reverence and he's the only other one that really stands out to me as maybe having the having something extra because I agree with you a great coach like you and me have watched the game all our lives a, a really good coach would see things that you and me just don't even recognize, you know? Yeah. And to be able to see the game on that level is something that's really interesting. And I think that, you know, you look at today's coaches, I think Bennett has something that you can't put your finger on, but he gets something out of his teams, you know? And Craig Bellamy, like, 
he, I mean, if you go by record, he's the greatest coach of all time. And it's just, it's incredible what a really good coach can do and what a big difference they can make to a side. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and as I said before, like you, a, a great coach can make great players better. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the thing that I think separates a lot of coaches. Not many yeah. coach, coaches can do that with great players. A lot of the times they just let the great player do their thing and just get a bunch of support staff around them, so to speak. I, I guess that's one of the interesting things about Mal Meninga at rep level is that as a club coach, he wasn't that great. He, he he was probably middle of the pack, you know, yeah. overall. But um, at Queensland level, and look, he had one of the all-time greatest teams ever that was assembled. Um, he did it. But even at Australian level, he has something at that representative level that just works. And I don't know whether it is that you cannot question that he has done everything at rep level. Like, it doesn't matter what player you are. If you're Darren Lockyer and you work walk into a team that Mal Meninga's coaching, Mal Meninga's done it, you know. Um, so whether the rep players look up to Meninga and trust him and trust everything he says, or whether Mal Meninga just knows what you need to do to win a rep game and come together in the space of 10 days, he has something at rep level that he didn't have at club level, which is really interesting. No, I agree. I agree. It's um, hey, it's a fascinating topic too. Talk about coaches and what makes what makes who better than others. Mm-hmm. You're going for a while with that one. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's uh, I mean, that could be a chat for another day. Wouldn't it be good to get an actual coach in one day? I mean, Michael McGuire might be free soon, so we could probably get him. I guess. Yeah, we'll give him three days, hey. Yeah. And then um. Because the Tigers go and hire another coach, how long do you reckon it'd take me to be able to start bitching about him again? Are the poor followers of this podcast going to be? Are they going to start having withdrawal symptoms? I give it four days. Eh? <laughs> yeah, probably four days. <laughs> I just it's going to be interesting. If I if I had to put money on it, I'm saying Paul Green. Oh fuck! I just have a feeling when he. When he stepped down from that Queensland role, and whether he really stepped down or they kind of moved him on because they wanted something different, I just had a feeling about it. The fact that they moved him on with no replacement in mind mm-hmm. is the thing that makes me think he's had a gig somewhere else to go to straight away, and it was urgent that he took it. Mm-hmm. And so I've been I've been worrying that the Tigers have signed him all along, and they're going to go, oh, he's a... Premiership winner, I'm going, yeah, well, so is a dickhead. You just, oh, fucking hell. So is Michael Hagen. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I'm sorry, you've got to go through this as a fan. I know it sucks. The thing is, this is all I know as a fan. Yeah, that's weird. But the last time I followed my team, knowing that they were a successful team, and they were a genuine threat to the, you know, to the premiership. I was nine years old. <laughs> oh, that's a rough one. And even then, like, oh, they were they were genuine, genuine competition heavyweight then. And the following year, they were still one of the best sides. I don't think people can 
would if you explained how big the Balmain Tigers were, people would not think you were telling the truth. That we were a juggernaut. Yeah. The crazy thing about the Balmain side in the eighties is that that team has probably goes down as one of the greatest, not just Balmain sides, but one of the greatest squads assembled mm-hmm. over a, you know, six to eight year period. And yet, out of all of the teams that have done that, they've been as good as that as far as, you know, names on paper and what they've achieved while they're at the club. They're the only one that didn't win a premiership. Yeah. That's the thing that's crazy. It really is. They run into some bloody good teams, though, like... Oh, yeah, but, I mean, you look at this... I mean, and this is the year before the Salary Cup came in, but you look at who Balmain had in that side. You got Tim Brasher before... Three or four years before he became a test player. Um... David Brooks, who was a Origin representative, uh, Andy Courier, who somehow played Test football for England at, in that period. Mm-hmm. I don't understand if Andy Courier came along today that he'd be, you know, he'd have forty fucking Tests for England. But <laughs> back then, how? Yeah. Um, Sean Edwards, yeah, one of the one of the better halves that England had in the eighties and nineties. I think yeah. he won like twenty one different. Trophies in England, insane. Mm. You got Ben Elias was a current Test player. Gary Freeman, a Test player. Russell Gardner, who'd played Test and Origin players as well. James Grant, who'd actually played for the Wallabies before he came across to the to the Tigers. Uh, Gary Jack, the world's best player, just the year before. Bruce McGuire, a Test player and an Origin player. Um, Wayne Pearce, Test Origin player. Steve Roach, same. Paul Sirenen, same. That's a fucking stunning squad to have around. And that's most of your forward pack and, and your halves and your spine. Yeah. All set. World-class players, test players. That's what they had. Um, there was very few teams that were better than them. And that's just the 89 squad. You know, some of the ones before it in 86, 87, they had Gary Schofield at his absolute peak. Um, 88, they had Ellery Hanley at his absolute peak. Yeah, you know, it's just insane what they had. And the way that it, I mean, by 94, they were pretty much done. Like Not, not 94, mate. 91. That's two so years bad. after this, Alan Jones came in and half of these players all just fucked off. Yeah. People, it, and people think they just retired because they were old. Benny Elias was 27. Ciro was 26. Blocker was 29. These both weren't even 30. Wayne Pierce was 31. He retired the year before. You know, they weren't old. Mm. They just knew that Alan Jones was fucking shit. <laughs> ah, it's so weird how, like, if you'd gone to somebody in 1989, said in five years' time, this is, it's not just all over. The club is struggling to survive. They would not have believed it. Like, I still remember footage of Balmain Leagues, Leagues Club where, it, it like to me if somebody says a packed packed leagues club for grand final day, that's the image I have in my head. Yeah. It's not even Panthers Leagues Club. Um The big Bowman logo on the carpet. Yeah. It just it's so weird how sport can be sometimes like that where and it's I know it's more than a window because they've got a very long history, but there's this window of like they're right there to win a title and it doesn't quite work out for them. 
and then five years later, it's literally like, oh no, we're struggling here. It's very strange. Yeah, how quickly it turns. Yeah, yeah. and it'd be like the, I mean, it'd be like the Panthers now in five years' time. They're, you know, they're stuffed. Well, like they've become the Bulldogs now. Yeah, yeah. It's it's insane how quickly it can drop off. I mean, the, that is five years after the, the Tigers made that last grand final in 89 that they finished with a wooden spoon. Mm. And mm. it's only five years after they got the wooden spoon that they had to merge. Yeah, and it was like the, the merger was weird. Maybe we should do a whole episode on the merger because... We could do that. Yeah, it was like... Uh, it was almost an afterthought merger, wasn't it? It was like... Yeah, it was done by both clubs to try and protect themselves because they mm-hmm. knew that all the other options around them was eventually, essentially takeover bids. Yeah, and, and like for both teams, it was over. Like yeah. there wasn't a question of you'll survive going forward if you're lucky. It was done. Yeah, Balmain were told, from memory, Balmain were told that you have a short existence. Mm-hmm. We we suggest you might only have about five or six more years left as a sole entity, and you'll have to merge anyway. And they knew that if they waited that that period of time, they would be in such a poorer position going forward that they would only have to accept the takeover bid. So they had to take the merger then, so yeah. they could still have some form of identity, you know, moving forward. I've That's been... gone down well. Yeah. <laughs> At least they went from strength to strength. Um, yeah. I've, I've been thinking a lot lately about the North Sydney sides of the late 90s because a lot of people that listen to us probably don't realise what a, a stable part of the competition they were at the top of the ladder and how they were they were always one of the teams you had to get past. It, they might not have been premiership favourites, but they were a team you had to beat in the finals pretty much Bloody. year on year on year. Always had a bloody tough and talented forward pack. Yeah, yeah. It was like them and uh, Newcastle always had good forward packs. Yeah. And, it, like, in the space of about three years, it just went to nothing. Yeah, those last three years, they, well, you know, as, we, as we've jokingly said before, and not, not jokingly making fun of, oh, you know, being wrong. It's le- legitimate, but, you know, it rained. Yeah, yeah. It, it rained in Gosford and it delayed no, the building of that stadium. I doubt that there's too many teams at a professional level anywhere in the world that had to fold or merge because of rain. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good question. I can't think of any that were that badly affected by the weather. But, yeah, I, I know for the Panthers, there was a, one of the Panthers CEOs uh, and this is going back maybe 12, 15 years ago or something. And he said that the reason that the Panthers still were around was because it rained in Gosford. And, like, it, it really was. It was that close. Yeah, yeah, Penrith. I mean, that's the thing, though. I mean, that's Super League War, which we've gone through. I mean, that was that was making mincemeat of a lot of clubs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Again, that's another chat for another episode. Yeah, we've just talked about fifteen different episodes we could do, eh? Well, yeah, we're just we're just fleshing a few ideas out. We're, we're not giving it to you now. 
<laughs> no, no, we're just we're just dick teasing everyone. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> we'll get round to all of this one day. Yeah, Trust we've us. Got, we've got a whole off season. I've still, I reckon, I've still got. Uh, in about a week from now, I'll be crying about the Panthers getting smashed by the the Storm. So, and after that, we got a whole off season. Yeah, I mean, I've I've got pretty much an episode every week of abusing the West Tigers board members until they quit. <laughs> I mean, they're not quitting for the next ten years, so you know what we're doing every week for the next ten years. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah, that won't get repetitious at all. <laughs> but it's good because most of our listeners are probably. Parramatta or Penrith fans, and they they like nothing more than West Tigers sooks. At least I'm not sooking about other clubs. I'm just sooking about my own club, about how shit it is. So I think they find that a little bit cathartic because they don't have to worry about theirs being crap because they go, oh, poor Fergo, his team's worse. But how weird is it that we started a podcast, right? <laughs> and a lot of the talk, like when we started the podcast, I wasn't thinking about Penrith being good. And... You know, there's been so much weird shit that's gone on at the West Tigers. It's just been a matter like if you sat down and said, "Okay, let's not make it about our two clubs." If we didn't talk about our two clubs, we'd be missing giant chunks of what's going on in rugby league. We would, plus we'd have about two hundred and eighty episodes less. Yeah, bro. <laughs> <laughs> People would be able to listen to all our entire history of podcasts in, you know, the time it takes them to, I don't know, make toast. Well, I tell you what, if we had started the podcast during the Matthew Elliott era, oh, oh my God. Yeah, I, re- I reckon we need to do a history episode on that. We probably should, hey. Yeah. We should go through one one year after another year. And the funny thing is the year I'll be angriest is when he took us to second place on the ladder. Because I knew that that was like, fuck, this guy's going to be here for, like, yeah. longer. As soon as he does that, yeah, oh, here comes a contract extension. <laughs> I was you so angry. Because <laughs> it, it's a weird thing. You don't want to see your team lose. But sometimes you know that your team losing could be the best thing about getting rid of a whole heap of things that are bad at the club. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So you, you're willing to, to, to take a bad year if it means that you get a whole heap of improvements out of it. That doesn't oh. happen at the West Tigers. We just get lots of bad years and no improvements. And I get it. The year that we re-signed Matt Adamson. Oh, if we, if we had a podcast going then, I would have been sued. <laughs> Personally. <laughs> well, you know, we can go back in time. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. We could do this stuff. But we can make it fair. We can go back to when Alan Jones was coach at Balmain. Yeah. <laughs> I know there's been a couple of episodes we've brought that up, and you've said some shit, and I've been like, whew. <laughs> I hope he's not listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, boy. Oh, look, we should probably wrap this one up, I reckon. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for tuning in, people. Um, hope you enjoyed the intro. That's always good when, um, we just throw a bit of a curveball at you. Yeah, we get 15 minutes into it and then we tell you what number it is. Just, just because we like doing shit differently. Yeah. So, you know, you know what I was thinking? Mm-hmm. I could just drop the intro now at the end. Yeah, do it. Why Who not? else does that? Yeah. 
All right, well, welcome to episode 346 of Fergo and the Freak. I, I think got it's seven. Rugby League snap. I think 347. It was seven. Let's do that as well. It's episode 347 of Fergo and the Freak. I'm that bloke from Rugby League Project, Andrew Ferguson. You can find me on Twitter at AndrewRLP. And joining me in this episode was the glorious League Freak. You can also find on Twitter at League Freak. What can we tell I, them, mate? I had a good one. It was good. <laughs> it, was, it was good. It was good. Um, you can find us on all the socials, uh, Instagram, Twitter, at uh, Fergo Freak Pod. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, MySpace. Let us know if you think we should be on any other social media platforms. Tumblr. Just, Tumblr. Just for shits and giggles, even. Um, and we'll just get Nadine to run it. <laughs> Nadine basically runs 75% of what we do. We just yeah. do the podcasts. That's pretty much it. She she runs everything else. <laughs> Finance. Uh, catering. <laughs> she she makes... Eagle. She, I'm pretty sure she's got like a donut maker or something. Uh, I've got to I've got to order like a thousand bucks worth of donuts because you know I'm a pig. Uh, that happens. Yeah. And it's locked down. You know you've got to treat yourself. Now, let me tell you, the double is at KFC, right? I found out five days ago. Four days in a row, I've had two doubles. Ooh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even joking, eh? You might need to start getting into a few salads soon. I plan on having a heart attack before then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, if we time it right, you'll do it in an episode. That'll, that'll be good. Yeah, it would be pretty handy just to have a heart attack while we're recording. Are you all right? Are you all right? <laughs> it's happening. It's happening. Jesus. Just got to chew through this. <laughs> anyway, I've had too much to drink tonight. Uh, no such thing. Um, yeah, check us out. Make sure you give us a five-star rating and give us a review on your podcast listening app. That'd be fantastic. And um, yeah, we'll wrap it up. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Catch you all next time.